Okay, this is episode 306, entitled For Our Dear Marjorie. And the episode is dedicated to my friend Josh Retterer. The music you just heard, which is a little weird, it's sort of Christmas in July type of thing, um, is Feliz Navidad by Los Straitjackets. And why I uh, love this excerpt, and I've cut it, the excerpt is because... Um, it goes on and on rather boringly, uh, Feliz Navidad, the Jose Feliciano track, but Los Straitjackets cover of it goes on uh, almost listlessly on one of their Christmas albums, and then suddenly, as you heard, the guitars erupt with a powerful... Um, solo in there, whatever the right word is, break. It's absolutely fantastic. And then it goes back to being a little bit tried and true. And what I love about Los Straitjackets, and I tried to say it to you last time, is um, they often come alive in the very last quarter or last third of their songs. It's kind of, I'm, I'm not sure it's conscious. I, I would have to ask Eddie Angel about that, but I have not been able to. But the uh, the power of it, like the power of someone in uh, the older phase of life as Mary and I are now, <laughs> whether we like it or not, is that uh, something very powerful and important and almost um, fresh and uh, extemporary and even maybe um, explosive pyrotechnic happens in the last third of the songs. And we're going to see this in its most uh, dramatic form in a um, excerpt I'm going to play at the end from the... Low Straight Jacket's version of Frosty the Snowman, and bear with it. That's the version that I played to Paul Walker and uh, John Harper at the Church of the Advent years ago, and it blows everybody's minds. But just bear with it, and you'll see a perfect example of what life can be. Now, I say that partly because I'm uh, aware that I've been given some opportunities, partly through Paula White and through other um, other avenues which actually relate to Paula White to um, produce some new product in later years that I would not have expected, especially on the platform which I'm given to perform it, uh, pr pr produce it. And um, it occurred to me that uh, um, I wanted to talk about some new material, some completely new material that I've been given in my sort of uh, late middle age that has, uh, has been very striking. And first I have to say one little thing. <clears throat> um, I've noticed as I've been producing six um, live stream teachings for the city of destiny in Apopka, Florida, that um, they're absolutely accurate in my view as the speaker in their broad, uh, heartfelt um, um, pictures of life and the material, especially the history of the Christian church that I've been trying to express. But there are a few minor errors. And what I found is, as I listened, I said, you know, listen, you listen to your own thing again, and do you wince or not? Well, actually, I was very satisfied with all five so far. There's one more will be released next Monday at four o'clock. But I was, um, I've been surprised how much I can affirm them, listening to them weeks after they were first put on paper. But there are some minor little errors, tiny little errors of fact. For example, I talk about John Bunyan in uh, in um, A Matter of Life and Death, the 1946 or 47 Powell Pressburger film. And I say that he, uh, in the cameo, Bunyan is speaking to David Niven as the flyer who's died or is almost dead. And he's not. Uh, Bunyan is speaking to the doctor who's just been killed, the very good doctor played by Roger Livesey. And um, uh, then uh, when I talk about um, J uh, Isaac Watts, I say that he spent all his life as the tutor to a wealthy family, which is not actually true. He spent a, a long period of his youth or his 
his younger adult years as the tutor to a wealthy nonconformist, i.e. dissenting Protestant family. But later on, he became pastor of a church from which he retired very, very quickly and did, in fact, spend almost his entire life in an upstairs small room in the house of a wealthy and very well-connected uh, Christian um, um, dissenting uh, family, the Abney family. Uh, so I was, you know, minor errors, uh, but the, the heart is there. And that's part of getting older. I feel like I see the big picture and not necessarily the details. We used to comment about John Ford, the movie director, that his uh, last few movies, in particular The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and finally Seven Women, were slightly a little sloppy in the details. It was as if he was a sort of an older guy who let sort of his secondary team handle, you might say, some of the details, so they're a little sloppy in some aspects of it or seem a little cast off. His emotional heart comes into The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in about four scenes, but not in all of it. And in um, Seven Women, the same would be true. Um, and uh, I now feel... I understand that. His, his, there's still John Ford movies, and there, there's no substitute for the concluding powerful denouement of sacrificial love in... Uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, but it's not quite as tight, you might say, as, uh, oh, I don't know, The Informer or uh, How Green Was My Valley. Um, so you'll notice um, in my talks that there are, if you really want to be a stickler, there are some minor um, details which are need a little correction, maybe a 10% correction, but the heart is there, and I, I, I affirm the heart of what I'm trying to say completely. So in this case, you're going to get um, a broad view, which is not necessarily a scholarly view, but it's definitely definitely my true kind of inner passionate and hopefully um, Christian anchored heart in dealing with some new material. Is that sufficient intro for you? Good grief. Uh, remember, at the end, you're going to hear the amazing, and stay with it, as we say, stay on to listen to Frosty the Snowman, which I think in my last cast I identified, or somewhere I identified it as Rudolph Redna's Reindeer, but it's actually Frosty the Snowman. Important, right? Well, Marjorie Lawrence is someone who's really connected with my own sense of what is ultimately true, and um, her story tallies very powerfully with what I've learned from Paula also, but which is deeply the providential message of the Holy Scriptures. Mary and I have been reading Jeremiah right now. We're at the end of the 50th chapter for what seems like forever in our early morning quiet times. And we've learned so much about the providence of God and the big, 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 big picture. And in Marjorie Lawrence's works of supernatural fiction, you see the big, 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 big picture, albeit in a very definite and individual um Form, but the form you almost have to discount for the truth of the powerful insight that she has. And then I will link that up with the uh, ultimacy of divine providence, especially the theology of the cross, which is to say God um, works through the very opposite of what it appears he would work through. The opposite of triumph and power is uh, failure, loss, and... Um, uh, weakness, and we see that very, um, gosh, gosh, I can't see anything more powerfully in my own experience of life, but I want to talk about it in a new and unusual form. Now, Marjorie Lawrence was a lady who I think was born around 1889, and I know that she died in 1969. She was an English 
writer who wrote many, many books and many, many short stories. And she alternated between complete what is called pulp, i.e. sort of, you know, Robert Block type of uh, Algernon Blackwood high class and Machen slightly high class. She was not as high class in her writing and her publications as, say, Machen and Blackwood, but um, she wrote supernatural stories about ghosts and uh, even dark uh, demonic possessions and triumphs over these dark forces in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and even 50s. Now, she's an interesting character because she came from a, an upper-middle-class English background in a very stratified situation, but she was very well-educated and had a kind of Church of England private school background, I believe. And um, um, she wrote uh, stories that reflected her own experience of seeing uh, dead people. She, from an early age, she believed that she had encountered previously deceased persons, their souls, in uh, interesting and important um, one-to-ones, which we, of course, can say, oh, come on, are you kidding? Um, And she became to believe um, in the 20s and earlier, actually, in what was called at that time spiritualism. Now, spiritualism, which is the belief that you can contact the dead through a medium and through what's called a seance, was very big in England in the 1920s. Now, um, we've had some direct contacts with it when we were there, odd contacts in the early 70s, because even then, the sort of tiny bits and pieces of it were still around in very spiritualist churches. There's one, by the way, uh, here in uh, in uh, Old Greenwich, I believe. Um, but what was so extraordinary um, was the reason it prospered was because of the death of so many young men in World War One, And with the deaths of thousands and thousands and thousands of young English boys, their mothers, let alone their fiancés, girlfriends, and wives, but mostly their mothers, were deeply um, lost and attempting to contact their children. So the power of um, spiritualism became a real cultural phenomenon, and you see it especially in Noel Coward's play and movie Blythe Spirit, but it's everywhere. And uh, she herself, Marjorie Lawrence, that's M as in man, A-R-G-E-R-Y, Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, as in Lawrence Stern, um, Marjorie uh, Lawrence uh, became committed to the cause of spiritualism and wrote books about what would happen after you died and um, uh, various, um, you know, I have some kind of sound in the background, hang on. Well, don't worry about that. That's the usual leaf blower. and There's nothing I can do. Let me concentrate. Um, she became a spiritualist and became quite well known for it. And then she wrote a couple of novels that became actually big sensations, and one of which was made into an extremely popular movie in the 1940s. But in any event, she wrote bunches of uh, stories about <clears throat> ghosts and returnees and uh, past lives impacting our present lives. And what's so powerful about them is that they, they, um, they flesh out the possibility of a reality above and beyond what we see. Now, you and I as Christians, uh, if you are, and whatever you are, it doesn't matter, To like Marjorie Lawrence, she, um, she saw a reality way beyond what we see, but it actually tallies with existential experience in my pastoral experience, let alone the experience of 
of my own life. And she wrote stories that sort of attempt to explain and uh, a phenomena in our life um, uh, through the power of unseen forces at work and at play around us, but not acknowledged. But in her stories, they come out. Let me give you an example. Um, uh, these were all sort of sketched in the background of basically sort of upper class London life from which she came and she married a very wealthy man she never told anybody until she was much older that she herself had been married once before she married the man she was married to most of her life who himself was divorced and there was a little bit of a you know shadow over that because of the way people thought in those days and yet she never said that she herself had uh, had done the same thing when she was uh, uh, an ill-advised early marriage, as she said, when she was like about 17. But we won't talk about that. She was a real person. And she was profoundly in touch with the element of romantic love that causes such uh, both delight, satisfaction, carnage, and near-eternal transcendence, which then uh, dogs you uh, and uh, creates both... uh, powerful fulfillment if it's within a lifelong marriage, as I can say of Mary and me, uh, or uh, deep, deep um, preoccupation in later times and even compulsive acting out. Now, um, let me give you an example. Her story, The Case of the Bronze Door, and I'm going to give you too much information here. She wrote detective stories involving a fellow named Panoyer, who is an occult detective, and his uh, sort of sidekick, his Watson, named Latimer. And Panoyer is constantly having to solve problems, the solution of which lies in beyond in some form of supernatural engagement and understanding. A little like Dennis Wheatley, but much less of the devil. Her her basic framework was very positive, what we might almost call, quote, white magic, end of quote, as opposed to black magic in the sense that Wheatley and others would use the term. And she also had a very strong Christian framework. Uh, that uh, uh, hits her stories. So there's often this great sacrifice, this great love, this great service, this great overwhelming uh, uh, generosity of heart. And in several cases, there's very specific Christian imagery and engagement, as in her story, the icon. And there are others. There are others like the haunted cathedral. Now, in her story, The Case of the Bronze Door, Panoyer, the detective, is uh, kind of uh, approached by a rather doddering um, sort of retired colonel type and uh, who says his nephew is having a terrible time at home and could Panoyer come and help because Panoyer somehow was at school with the afflicted nephew. Well, come to find out that the school chap, who's about, well, let it say he's... um about 38, 39, is having terrible troubles in his marriage with his lovely wife who can't understand what's happened to her husband. Well, it turns out while on a voyage with the Foreign Service or something related to his job, he was in Peking or Beijing and bought an ancient bronze door and brought it back to London and put it in his house. And the bronze door becomes the conduit for an ancient 3,000-year-old Chinese princess, did not pronounce that English way, princess, who is able to find a way into this man's heart in whose somehow, in his past lives, this poor uh, afflicted young Englishman was somehow um, involved in a triangular relationship with this Chinese princess 3,000 years ago, and he and the Chinese princess 3,000 years ago murdered a man so that they could be together. 
and um, or, or maybe it was the other one. Maybe they murdered a woman. I can't remember if they murdered. They may have murdered a wife or they murdered a husband, but they murdered somebody in order to be together. And they've been paying a terrible penalty for 3,000 years. And so now this princess has a visitation, so these supernatural visitations upon this poor chap in London and causes him to um, become profoundly alienated from his actual wife, who's a deer. And Penoyer must take on a kind of ancient uh, authority, which he has for reasons you can read when you read the story, to defeat the seductive spirit of this um, ancient but beautiful woman who is um, imprisoning the heart of this poor man in 1930s England, London. And um, it's a powerful story about how um, uh, a marriage is soured because of an ancient pre-existing condition that involves an ancient uh, relationship that is beyond and above the scene. Now, we may say, well, that's a ghost story. Well, it obviously is. Is there any truth to it? Well, probably none. And yet it, um, it says that there are unseen forces at work which are very powerful. And in this case, uh, Panora must vanquish this extremely persuasive and very beautiful ancient Chinese princess in order to save the man and his marriage, which he does. And it's a, it basically says that the, the, the relationship is, is foundering on a, a, a pre-existing, unseen, um, almost case of demonic attack, which must be repelled in order for him to live in the present, to truly appreciate the wife he has, who is wonderful, and for this man to find his poise in the long-term chain of life and being. Read it. Another story, which is unbelievable, is entitled, I think it's called The Case of the White Snake, and it's in her book with the odd title, pardon the title, but it's 1941, I think, the edition I have. Case of the White Snake is in a book called Number 7 Queer Street by Marjorie Lawrence. And in this one, uh, a kind of a, 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 a kind of school for orphans, a kind of school or benign, lovely institution for orphans, is afflicted by the appearance at night of a huge undulating white snake that kind of comes in through the window and is constantly moving towards the bed of a little chap whose name is Pickles, a little tiny sort of three-year-old named Pickles. And no one sees it except for a young nurse in the home uh, who is deeply, and no one else sees it, but she sees this huge undulating yucky white snake uh, at night seeming to threaten this little tiny child. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't mind spoiling it because it comes to find out <clears throat> there is an old colonel, an old, by that I mean about a 40-year-old, <clears throat> 45-year-old colonel living at the sort of beautiful house next door and the ultimate plan, God has arranged it. So in this school next to this great country house where this old colonel is kind of holed up with his sister just living, rather sad bachelor, um, is in fact uh, the spirit of a woman to whom this colonel was involved, a lovely young French woman whom in much earlier years he got pregnant. She had a little child, and the child... Uh, 
not 20 years off, but I mean, the, the, the child is maybe, let's say, eight years old. The child is actually this little child whose nickname is Pickles. And so the colonel, complete, he never knew that he had a child because his sister hid the fact from him. The poor mother of the child, a French woman who I think was in the house or maybe a servant, but I don't think so. I think he really loved her and she him. She went back to Paris and uh, tried to contact him when she was pregnant and he never replied because he was lied to by his sister and he never knew he had the child. And the woman died. And so there he is, the father of this child who he doesn't know. And the woman is somehow channeling her love for the child and for her love, the Colonel Windward, his name is, to produce this extremely odd psychic phenomenon of a white snake, which is actually very good, trying to use the nurse to see it for her to understand what really happened. It all comes out. And the, the colonel, who's now 40, realizes that the child is his, of this woman he truly loved, but thought had, had left him. And it all has to do with, and the young nurse, uh, who's not so young, but she's an adult, she becomes a kind of medium for the truth, and everything comes out. And uh, the sister who lied is sort of exposed, but she's a terribly sort of hoity-toity, self-righteous sort of matron who kind of retreats the scene. And the man is reunited uh, with the child he didn't know he had and ultimately marries the nurse, which we understand to be the plan all the way along of the shade or ghost of his former love, this beautiful, lovely French woman. Well, can you believe that? Now, I'm going to give you the names of a couple of the stories. It's hard to find those stories because they're only in this book, which is hard to get. But on the internet, you can get a couple of others. You can get uh, the Crystal Snuffbox. Now, these are all in books that you can get as ebooks. One is called The Floating Cafe, and one is called um, The Terraces of Night, N-I-G-H-T, both by Marjorie Lawrence. You can find them. They're easily available, and they're very cheap. But read The Crystal Snuffbox about a very good and wonderful fiancé who has to fight for her life against a wicked, wicked witch who has come and affected her fiancé, shall we say, to the uh, to to the downside, read a story called "The Dream," which is extraordinary about the odd way a kind of benign female ghost answers her lover's greatest prayer. It's a little funny, but actually very true to a lot of people's fixations, which they never talk about. Read one called "The Shrine at the Crossroads," which is unbelievably powerful about love between men and women, and also divine calling. It's about divine calling in relationship to the love between men and women, and is really, really good. Um, the Shrine at the Crossroads, and also read The Beauty Spot, about um, a kind of uh, supernatural <coughs> um, salutation which is offered through a cosmetic failure or a cosmetic transference, you'll have to read it, um, called The Beauty Spot. And finally, you might read one called Tin Pot Landing. These are all available in those two books about a, uh, a, a, a the shade of a, of a dead man who intervenes for the sake of his disappointed and really lovely um, fiancé in the most um, self-sacrificial way. Anyway, um, I'm just trying to say that the stories are great because they deal with men and women, they deal with uh, the power of, uh, of loss and fulfillment, and um, they deal with the fact that ultimately uh, the strings are being pulled by forces way outside our knowledge. And I say that to you from a Christian angle now. These stories are not Christian in any specific sense, although they have a Christian optimistic and faithful 
kind of uh, positive rather than nihilistic. They always avoid suicide. They always give a positive ending. Very powerful. But the deeper truth to which they point only analogically is that God is working. I mean, when uh, he closes one door, he opens another. That sounds like a cliche, but it's true. He pulls you out of one situation by letting it collapse, and then you begin to see something else that is infinitely better. And so many of us would say that about our relationships, about our children, about our parents, about things that have happened to us that have been so, so seemingly reversals of the first class, of the highest order, and then something powerfully benign has come when the voice of faith has told us that we have something to live for, even in the midst of a shattered dream. That song by Jimmy Webb by Glenn Campbell, listen to it, Shattered. When you're shattered, you need to hear, you need to know the voice of faith that God is actually providing. He's already at work through the shattering to provide something infinitely better and right and true and diagnostically superior to what you thought was good and needed to be shaken. Well, that's my little uh, podcast, and I've discovered Marjorie um, Lawrence, thanks to Josh, late in my life, you might say. But um, I want to compare this discovery with the conclusion, the wonderful conclusion of, uh, which, listen for, stay with it, um, Frosty the Snowman by Low Straight Jackets. I think I'll put it this way. Merry Christmas. Love you.